Hello, Nathan here. Welcome to the Journey Further podcast. This is a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. For this episode, we're joined by the one and only Seth Godin. Seth has dedicated his whole career to changing the way people think about marketing, business, and the way we work. He's the author of 19 bestsellers, including Purple Cow, Lynchpin, and This Is Marketing. He's posted on Seth's.blog every day for more than a decade. His TED Talks have had millions of views. To many, Seth is simply a legendary figure. Seth's latest book comes out on the 5th of November in the UK. It's called The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. And I had the privilege of reading an advanced copy so I could bring this exclusive conversation to you. If you learned something listening to this episode, please leave a rating or a review in your podcast app. And please do join the Journey Further book club. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. Here goes. Seth, hello, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So we'll start, as we do with every episode of the podcast, by asking you the question, what's the wrong you want to write? I think the the through line of the last 20 years of my career has been about indoctrination. I think that people have been indoctrinated by an industrial system and a culture that wants them to fit in, that enforces racial bias, that limits our belief in ourselves, that pushes us to not trust ourselves so that we will just rely on the system. And in the practice, I am really putting a sharp point on many of those things, which is that we don't have to accept the status quo if it's not getting us where we think our culture and us personally need to go. Amazing. And I've just finished reading the practice, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And it feels like it is a kind of a bit of a summation, as you say, of lots of the stuff you've written and talked about over the over the course of your, your career. I guess what triggered you to really dive into the practice in, in so much detail and kind of give this, I guess, feels like a bit more of a sort of philosophical, reflective take on, on the matter. Well, uh, writing a book when you have a blog is a crazy act. It reaches fewer people and takes way more work. So I only write a book if I have no choice. And in this case, like most of the books I write, there are two reasons. One, either I keep bumping into people who need me to be able to hand them a book that helps them with what they're wrestling with. That's certainly why I wrote This Is Marketing. People I cared about were having trouble sharing their message. Or, and I need to read it myself. And in this case, it's both of those things. That we are surrounded by people who are victims of social media, who think they need to be famous instead of important, who are being pushed on this faux vulnerability, faux authenticity bandwagon to have things that are called friends and things that are called likes which are neither. And I wanted to be able to make it clear to them that there's a different path available. And I also discovered as I was writing it, that I was reading it and it made me better. And I go back to my old work fairly often, some of it, because I like hearing from that other person who wrote it all those years ago. Um, And in this case, I needed to hear what I had to say to myself in the middle of a worldwide recession, a pandemic, uh, overdue focus on racial injustice and everything else, sometimes it's worth reminding ourselves that all we can do is start where we are and all we can do is start now. 
That's so interesting. And obviously the book itself, The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. Can you just give a little bit of background around why those three words, the shipping creative work, is so central to it? Right. So that was the, you know, the breakthrough that made it a book. Uh, the original title for the book was Trust Yourself, and the great Nikki Papadopoulos, my editor, persuaded me that uh, that was too clever. Um, shipping creative work. If it doesn't ship, it doesn't count. You're allowed to have a hobby, but this isn't about your hobby. This is about the change you make. And creative means it might not work. It's something that only you could do. It means that uh, we can't get a computer to do it, and we can't hire someone on Fiverr to do it. And work because it's not your hobby. It's hard. It takes emotional labor. It's better than digging a ditch. It's better than cleaning a latrine for sure, but it's still work. And we're not allowed to whine about the fact that we have make-believe writer's block. We have to simply show up and do our work. Because I I love that idea about um, we don't ship the work because we're creative. We're creative because we ship the work. And I guess it comes back to what you're saying with the wrong to write is that people have become far too focused on the big reveal or the aha moment or the thing they can share at the end of it all and miss this, all the much more important steps in between. Yeah, I think that one of the most pernicious traps is becoming outcome obsessed to hustle your way to becoming a hack to saying all that matters is the applause All that matters is the revenue. All that matters is making this list or that list. All that matters is the likes. Because they do matter in the sense that they give us fuel for the next cycle. But they aren't the point. The point is to see the world the way you see it, to do the best work you can, and then to learn from what happens next. That's what makes it a practice. So if we think about the doctor in the emergency room, patients die. But that doesn't mean you stop being a doctor. It just means you learned something in that interaction. And it's entirely possible, even if you had done it perfectly, someone wouldn't have pulled through. That doesn't make you stop being a doctor. And the same thing's true if you're a stand-up comic, and the same thing's true if you're trying to make social change. That when you go to raise money for a nonprofit, if you're only going to gauge if you did a good job by whether or not you got a donation, you're going to become paralyzed because you can't know if you got a donation until after you've done the work. And I guess it's it's failure, right? It's people just being increasingly afraid of failure. But those examples you highlight, being a a doctor with a patient on the table or a stand-up comedian on stage in front of thousands, the stakes are are raised. Like, is it a case of, yeah, with the practice, raising the stakes for what you want to achieve yourself? Well... It's interesting. The stakes for the patient on the table are certainly high, but the stakes for the doctor, you know, the the most uh, productive surgeons have the most patients dying because they're doing the most surgeries. And I feel badly for the patients who died, but the point is without the surgeons, we don't get anywhere. And the stand-up comic who does the most gigs is the one who's going to have the most people not laugh at a joke because they've been in front of the most people. So the question is, how do you even decide if it's a good joke? Is a good joke a good joke that's laughed at by every single person? Right? Like, you know, it's how many years later? 50 years later and we're still quote I was quoting Monty Python this morning. But I'm surrounded by people who don't understand Monty Python, which I don't understand, right? <laughs> 
And the, the thing is, that was an act of brilliance that almost no one understood. Made on a shoestring, saw, seen by almost no one. And yet, 50 years later, it still informs the way so many people think. I think that's great work. But if they'd been measuring it by ratings or cash, they would have said, we're a failure. And I think that would have been a mistake and a tragedy. Mm. Because you talk about this idea of what good work is in 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 the book that, and I guess trying to reinforce for people that it's not about the response or the outcome. It's good work because it was work that was meant to be done in the first place. Is that right? So the practice says that we get to show up. We're super privileged. We get to show up and do something that hasn't been done before. Can we develop good taste? Can we develop a pattern? Can we understand genre in a way that when other people see it who are informed, they understand what we were after? Can we embrace that feeling that hits us just before we ship that says, oh, it's not ready yet and still ship it? Because being able to put work we're proud of into the world, regardless of whether it's guaranteed to work or not, is the key. There's a, in the US, a hackneyed expression, if you knew you could not fail, what would you do? And it's a ridiculous question because you should just game it by, you know, picking invisibility and flight and all this other stuff. A better question is, what would you do if you knew you were going to fail? What would be worth doing even if you were sure it wasn't going to work? And once we can embrace that, then we're much more likely, paradoxically, to make things that actually work. And when we think about the great insights, in whether it's in business or in music or anything else, there are always things that no one expected. All bestsellers are surprise bestsellers because the obvious bestsellers don't work. Well, that's interesting. And there's quite a few things there. Like how much of it is when you talk about genre of finding your audience, but being at the, operating at the fringes of it, exploring the fringes, the boundaries, the blurred lines. So the smallest viable audience is the key to unlocking all of this. Uh, I'm interviewing Cory Doctorow later today. Cory Doctorow is one of the great public intellectuals of our time, an important science fiction author, and almost no one has heard of him. 99% of the people who speak English have never read a word he wrote. And no, yet... I can't say I have. And yet, it's enough. It's enough to make him a bestseller. It's enough to make his Kickstarter super successful. It's enough because 1% of the 2 billion people who speak English is a lot of people. It's enough. And instead of saying, let me seek out the people who don't get the joke. Let me seek out the people who don't understand me. Let me seek out the non-believers. You're going to spend your whole day trying to persuade people to get the joke that they don't want to get. Instead, if we begin with the smallest viable audience, that group of people who share the same taste we share, who want to go where we are going, they become fuel for us to become a singular, uh, peculiar entity, not a run-of-the-mill generic thing. And it's interesting because like that concept isn't incredibly new thinking but it feels like it's still such a huge stumbling block for people trying to create a business or create a movement 
why do you think we're so stuck in uh, in a in a way of not embracing that concept, that that fundamental concept? Well, you know, it's funny because my first reaction when you said that was, "Damn straight, it's new thinking." I coined the term, and people push back on me every time I talk about it. <laughs> but then I realized that the real point is seeking new thinking is a problem, and I shouldn't care about whether it's new or not. What we need to seek isn't something where we can say, I invented this, but where we can show up and show up and show up until the people who are resisting the idea say, oh, that was obvious. That is when we've done the, the thing that is really useful because every idea that's accepted is then perceived to be obvious, right? That it was obvious that someone was going to invent Facebook and it was obvious that Hamilton was going to get made. How could it not be? But at the beginning, there were a lot of skeptics. So why do people push back and you know minimize it? They, they like to use the phrase niche down. Two negative terms pushed next to each other, niche down. How about specific up? Because that's what we're talking about is being extremely specific so you can be the best in the world at what you do. If you're going to be generic, you can't be the best at it because everyone does it. But if you can be specific, the person who's looking for what you do will find you. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying what Seth's got to say so far. Just a quick interruption to share a special invitation for you to join the Journey Further book club. We're focusing on Seth's book for the whole of November, picking out the most bite-sized and actionable insights and sharing it straight into your inbox. We do this with all of the best business books, host exclusive events with the authors and loads more. 1,500 members and counting in the community now. Just hit the link in the show notes or head to journeyfurther.com to get signed up for free. I can't wait to meet you. Making that start then, putting aside the the point where you might get to where you've, you've created something amazing and everyone says, oh, it was obvious that this was required. How can you find that passion or that muse which you have to, to, to explore in the first place. Right. And thank you for setting me up. There is no passion and there is no muse. The muse is totally made up. There's no such thing. We just get to do the work. Pick any area, doesn't matter, and then do the work. No one was born to be an oil painter. No one was born to be a playwright. No one was born to be a podcaster. These are not talents. These are skills. Skills are learnable. We can develop a craft. If you develop a craft and commit to the craft, it's entirely likely you will enjoy the journey. But if you're sitting around waiting for the muse to tap you on the shoulder, you are hiding because there is no such thing as the muse. It was invented by Mary Shelley's ne'er-do-well husband, Percy, who was a total loser. And writer's block is a myth. There's no such thing. If skills are learnable, then what what about talent? Uh, Everyone talks about talent is the is the word you hear much more than skill right talent then right because talent lets us off the hook and i will uh give people the point that if you're not born with the dna to be seven feet tall you're unlikely to have the talent to slam dunk a basketball but even perfect pitch is not something that we are born with interesting studies showed that um people in china are way more likely to have perfect pitch than people in the United States because 
uh, it's easy to test that they, you know, you play a note and they know what it is. However, people of Chinese descent born in the United States aren't more likely to have perfect pitch. It is not based on whether you're a Chinese or not. It's based on whether you spoke Chinese growing up. Because Chinese as a language is sung, it is not spoken. And if you're singing from an early age, you're more likely to develop perfect pitch. So even perfect pitch isn't a talent. And most of what most of us do all day is not based on anything in our DNA. And if you had an identical twin and you were separated at birth, it's really unlikely that they would develop the way you're developing. These are all skills that are based on culture and upbringing and effort. Now, there are certain things that are harder for some people than others. Like it's really hard for me to be organized and to sit still for eight hours taking notes and then taking a test. Well, given that I have choices, I've been able to organize my life so I don't have to do that. And if you can organize your life toward things that come naturally to you, I think that's great. But let's not get confused about the specificity of talent because I don't think talent is particularly specific. That's really interesting. And I guess it's that broader nature, nurture question which, which, which always pervades. Is that something you've convinced yourself more and more and more towards the nurture end of the spectrum as you've, as you've learned or have you always thought that way? Well, you know, I was a terrible high school student and um, I figured out a way to get myself decent grades, but I wasn't what they wanted in high school. And when I got to college, I realized my talents did not lie in following a straight path and becoming indoctrinated in the sense that I have ADD and I'm restless and I'm curious. These, I think, are talents. Um, so I organized around that by taking more courses than I was supposed to, by not caring about my grades, and by uh, becoming a sponge for a lot of random information. College permitted me to do that. Lots of other people went to college and didn't have the guts to follow that path because they'd been so deeply indoctrinated by the industrial system. So what I'm trying to say to people is, given the enormous range of how you can be productive in our society today, the mistake is pigeonholing yourself. That The TV star who says, I don't like TV, I need to be in movies. And the movie star who says, movies, you, know, you weren't born to be in movies, not TV. That's absurd. And you've become specific in your objections because you're afraid. And what I'm getting at is our talents are very broad brushed primary colors. And then what we get to do, what skills we pile on them are largely up to us. What breeds that fear then? What causes people to be afraid? Well, I think it starts in first grade and it gets multiplied in high school, right? No one wants to get beat up. No one wants to be ridiculed. No one wants to go home and say to their parents they did poorly. In our culture, if you come home with, and I have no idea if the grading works the same way in the UK, but if you come home uh, with one A and four Ds, you're in a lot of trouble. If you come home with five Bs, it's like, oh, okay. There's a lot of pressure. Well, the kid who comes home with one A and four Ds really needs parents who says, who would say to them, how do you get more of that thing you love. And we'll figure out a way around the D stuff because clearly there's a challenge there for you. But if we spend all our time fixing that, 
you're not going to find that thing that you're the world's best at. Let's do more of the A stuff because we can hire someone on Fiverr to do the D stuff for you. Mm. Yeah, forget all the Ds. Just celebrate the A and persevere. Yeah. That's really interesting. There was a recent big scandal in the UK because they had to estimate the grades of everyone's exam results because of COVID and them not actually having taken the physical tests. And it was carnage because everyone is just about have I got AAB or have I got ACC? And right. that is all that it's about. And the process and all the work up until that point is cast aside. Yeah. And, and, you know, here the outcry when uh, an elite school said, we're going to give everybody an A on every course this semester. Why? What's the problem? Exactly. Why are we sorting in this false hierarchy and then magnifying these differences? Uh, but to flip it, in the book, I tell this in, a, in a, this is marketing. I tell the story of a borough of London called Hackney. And I live in Hackney. You live in Hackney. So you'll like do, this yeah. story. And I need to know if you've ever been to the store I'm going to tell you about. So um, the reason that uh, cab drivers in London are called hacks and the reason that somebody who's viewed as generally untalented and just getting by to make a living is called a hack is because uh, when London was smaller, Hackney was on the outskirts and they raised horses there. And the horses they raised weren't good horses. They weren't race horses. They were just good enough horses. They were indifferent horses. And so the horse-drawn carriages tended to be drawn by a horse from Hackney. And that's why we called the person who was driving it the hack. And uh, I included, I found a photo of a fish and chips shop in Hackney. And it's all run down. And it, fried chicken too. Fried chicken and fish and <laughs> chips. It's all run down. And I'm like, there's no doubt in my mind, this is not the world's best fish and chips and chicken place. It might not even be the best one in six blocks. It's just, if you're too lazy to go six blocks away, this is the best one right here. And the problem with that is you've signed yourself up, not just for a life of making mediocre food, but for a life of disrespect. Because no one's going out of their way to come see you. No one's going, would miss you if you shut down. And what a shame. You're going to spend the same 10 hours a day at work anyway. Why not spend those same 10 hours earning the respect and dignity that you deserve by making something that's special? And I don't believe anyone is born with the talent to fry chicken. I think it's a skill. And I think if you hadn't been brainwashed into believing you didn't deserve it, you could create something really special. I I mean... I need to identify specifically which shop it is you're talking about. Maybe I have visited. Um, I mean, it's interesting though, and I, I guess it plays into what you're saying about the, the industrial system not favoring people who want to go that extra mile because it favors safety and it's, it's, it's full of bias, I guess. Sort of tied into that, another kind of interesting thing I think you, you reference in the practice is this imposter syndrome feeling. It's like, I felt this when I started doing this podcast, for example, like complete imposter syndrome. I think I came to the same realization that I think you have that it's that's a good thing, that that's a really good feeling to have, right? Exactly. So who are you to have a podcast on such important, useful, philosophical issues that affect all of us? What have you done? 
what right do you have to speak up on these topics? When we hear that voice in our head, we feel like an imposter. Imposter syndrome is widespread in our modern economy. Like, I don't think you have an imposter syndrome if you're a fifth generation farmer and you're growing cauliflower because the cauliflower comes out of the ground. But to act as if, to lead, to inspire, you've never done it. How can you prove it? And so people say, how do I get rid of that feeling? And my answer surprises them because I say, you can't get rid of it and it's a good thing you have it. When you mm-hmm. have it, it means you're on to something. And to welcome it says, thanks for reminding me that I'm not a sociopath, that I am feeling a little bit insecure to show up and act as if, but the very definition of leadership is doing something that hasn't been done before. And if you're doing something that hasn't been done before, of course you feel like an imposter because how can you prove it's going to work? And every single time I've written a book, I've never written that book before. You know, I could type a copy of Purple Cow in about three hours but I didn't write the first copy in three hours because I had to find my way through it. And that is the joy and privilege of our work is that we're not typists, we're explorers. And I, I love this definition of leadership there and it's made me think about it in a different way. People think leaders are the people who shout the loudest or, or stand at the front, but like you're saying leaders are the people who are doing the stuff that hasn't been done yet, who are making the, making the decisions, who are forging forward. Exactly. Managers have power. Managers have authority. Managers are the key element of the industrial age. Can't get anywhere without managers. That you know, back when or in the future when we get on airplanes again, if there isn't management, the planes don't fly. But leadership is different. Leadership is voluntary. It's voluntary to follow. It's voluntary to lead. Not everyone chooses to lead. Most managers don't lead, and we should be really clear about which one we are. So I love this because it, it's the same in terms of changing a perspective on a definition. Creativity as a concept is also obviously what, what's considered here. And people tell themselves, oh, I'm not really a leader. And people tell themselves, oh, I'm not really a creative. And I, I think that's you do a really good job of saying being creative is not about creating shiny things or being a designer or it's about... Well, yeah, I guess it, it, it's, it's about the practice, but it's about putting yourself on, on show and trying things. That's right. And creativity, it's funny we use the word I am creative or I am not creative. We can certainly use words like that about tall because either you're tall or you're not. But what I would say about creative is have even once in your life you told a joke that was funny, once in your life solved an interesting problem, once in your life done something that surprised anyone. Everyone I've ever spoken to who asked, answers that honestly says, yes, I've done it once in my life. So therefore you are creative. And all we're discussing now is, are you willing to do it again? Are you willing to go on that journey again? But to say I am not creative is patently false. It can be proven to be false. What could be true is I'm not being creative right now. And that is something that's easier to fix. Hmm. And what's the fix? Well, the fix is caring enough about the people you serve, being generous enough to do something that might not work. That is an act of creativity. The people who say they have writer's block, the people who say they're not creative are indicating they are afraid of bad writing and bad ideas. They are Hmm. saying, I am not willing to have a bad idea. I am not willing 
to put things in front of people that I will regret later. If I had good stuff, of course I would share it. I'm just not willing to risk it not being good. And the only way through that is to create enough bad stuff that some good stuff slips in. And when it does, developing good taste and just sharing that one. But first, you got to produce a lot of bad stuff, not insisting that everyone eat your bad food or follow your bad advice, but write it down, indicate it, make a list. And then if you do that enough, something's going to come out the other side. And the thing that will come out the other side is an idea that's actually worth sharing. I like that because it's the people are afraid of the criticism of what they might put out. But I think that most people, most people in your audience won't have anything to say on most of the stuff that you put out. It will be, they will be indifferent towards it. And it's almost like you need to train yourself to be indifferent towards it as well to an extent. Yeah. And again, many people who are listening to this have the power to put an idea in front of 100 people or 1,000 people. Some people have the power to put it in front of 100,000 people. And you shouldn't ship everything. But you need to constantly commit to this practice of creation because if you don't, you won't know what to ship because each thing you come up with will be so precious, you'll be afraid to discard it. And so when I run into someone who says they're blocked, I say, show me all your bad ideas. Show me your notebook filled with bad writing. Show me your sketchbook filled with all of your bad designs. Because after I see all your bad work, then I might believe you are incapable of good work. But right now, you're not even showing me any of your work because I think you're hiding it. <laughs> I like that. I, um, I wanted to ask you a question which my colleague uh, put to me. I sent a message around yesterday saying I was speaking to you. Um, so Dan asked me, he said, there's always a lot of talk about what's changing and what's next. So we're a marketing agency for, for context. So there's always trends, there's always new channels, new, new things to explore. But his question is, what's your view as the stable areas that people should always be looking to leverage? So put aside the new shiny things, the new shiny trends. What are the most stable areas that people should always be looking to leverage? So I started on the internet in 1976. And I started on the World Wide Web uh, in 1992, 93, when it first came out. And what I've seen over and over again is that, particularly in tech circles and marketing circles, there's a lot of focus on the new thing. For 15 years, Hollywood was spending a fortune on cool websites, as if a cool website was going to make a movie do better. Well, no, it just made the people who worked on them happy. And if you think about who had a big head start when Twitter came out, who had a big head start when Facebook came out, you don't hear about those people anymore at all. There is almost no advantage to surfing in the froth of what's next and what's new. What has been consistent from a marketing point of view since 1976, but particularly since 1990, is we now have built for the first time in the history of mankind, a system where for free, anybody who wants to can reach anyone who wants to be reached as often as they want until the person says, I don't want you to reach me anymore. This idea, which I wrote about in Permission Marketing in 1999, is the fundamental principle of our era when it comes to what does it mean to market? What does it mean to be in the culture? And yet, 
most people who hire a marketing agency or most people who think of marketing say, how do I interrupt strangers? How do I go viral? How do I get in front of people who have never heard of me? And they are completely missing the point. The point is, if there are 10 people who you have enough trust with to tell a story to, and they don't tell anybody else, it wasn't a good story. That what we have to do is keep coming back to that principle of attention is scarce. Trust is priceless. Don't trade attention for trust. Earn attention, turn it into trust, and then serve those people with an idea that's worth sharing. None of that has changed in my entire professional life, and I don't see it changing in the near future. That's really interesting, and I feel like that plays into the wrong you'll want to write about this system and how it's acting against us. We're forever striving for the new customer rather than trying to look after the existing one. Yeah, and the, you know, the industrial system around us has made us all richer than the last king of France more resources, more leverage. Even people who are at the disadvantaged part of the scale have access to things that were unimaginable 100 years ago. And yet, it has dehumanized us and taken away joy and created stress and robbed from us the ability to make magic. And magic doesn't happen from giant corporations. And magic doesn't happen from people who just do their job every day. Magic happens when we decide there's something we want to make better. And despite the people who say it can't be done, we try to do it anyway. And it's all tied together because it used to be your magic was hidden because you had no way to share it with anybody. But now you can earn that small group. You can earn that trust. And then you have a chance to bring your work to the world. And I just, every day I see people wasting it. And it really makes me sad. Seth, it's been so interesting speaking with you. I've just got three final quickfire questions to ask you. Firstly, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? I used to believe that the system was more open and fair than it actually is. That the deeply embedded caste system, the level of indoctrination that's done on different people differently, really holds people back. I was born on in American football, the 99-yard line, and I get credit for scoring a touchdown. Uh, a lot of people don't have that advantage, and I am seeing it way more clearly than ever before. And why is it you're feeling that so much of the stuff that is being created isn't serving the right people or is just over-serving a, a, a group of people who are already so well catered for? Well... If you've been indoctrinated to believe you're never going to amount to anything, if you've been indoctrinated to believe that you don't deserve or belong, then capturing the attention and excitement of that group of people is not particularly easy. And so uh, marketers and capitalists who seek uh, the most direct path to their goal naturally show up to serve people who are eager to hear from them. And so we got to figure out how many years into somebody's life is it before we start telling them, nah, this one isn't for you. And the earlier we can intervene and help people see their potential, the better. Second question, if this wasn't your mission, what would it be? I think that the most urgent uh, 
challenge we face as a group is the fact that we are destroying the only place we have to live. And I've been trying to figure out how I can use my small amount of leverage to make a difference in our carbon economy. It's not clear to me how I can have as much impact there, but it's something that I'm really focused on and I've been spending time on. And I hope that maybe I can make a contribution there. So it's interesting how many people I speak to, uh, other authors like yourself, I spoke to Bruce Daisley a while ago, who just left his job at Twitter and he said exactly the same thing that he wanted to apportion a chunk of his time and what audience influence he has to that to that cause, which I think is I think is amazing. Um, and then finally, Seth, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further Book Club to read, what would it be? So I'm going to deliberately be uh, provocative here. It bothers me that movie stars get to talk about their movies, uh, but authors are supposed to be embarrassed about the way they spent a year of their life. I wrote a book called Lynchpin 10 years ago. It changed my life. Just writing it, just researching it, transformed the way I saw the world. And uh, it was out of character for me. It didn't rhyme completely with the work I wrote before, but it matters to me and to the people who have touched it. It is a book about industrialism and about brainwashing. And um, I have 50 other books that I could recommend. Uh, I think uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, is urgent reading and will change your life. But since I have the microphone, I'm also going to recommend Lynchpin. Thank you, Seth. No, I appreciate it. Seth, it's been a it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, I really hope lots of people pick up the practice when it when it comes out in a few weeks' time because I thought it was fantastic. Uh, but yeah, thank you for taking the time. Thank you, sir. This was fun. Keep making a ruckus. There we have it. Thank you so much for listening. Why not share this episode with a like-minded colleague who you think might also find it insightful? Hit subscribe to stay up to date. We have episodes coming every single Tuesday. And last but not least, a final reminder for you to join the Journey Further book club to learn loads more from smart people like Seth. Head to journeyfurther.com or hit the link in the show notes to sign up. I'll see you soon.